Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about transparency and secrets. Inappropriate Conversations is now available, to one extent or another, on SoundCloud. SoundCloud.com slash IC underscore Greg. What you'll find there on SoundCloud when you visit, in addition to perhaps a few other clips that I put on my feed because I enjoy either the song or the show, mainly I've got segments, little snips, of the earliest Inappropriate Conversations shows. I've put clips up for the first 16, as a matter of fact. The idea is to direct people, if they're interested, toward the very early pages of Inappropriate Conversations at inappropriateconversations.org by augmenting the blurb that supports the shows as a show notes sort of a paragraph with some sort of a clip, a segment, enough to give people an idea of whether they might be interested in more. I don't know yet whether I'm going to spend any sort of money adding to the library there. Uh, I'm going to hang around underneath the two-hour mark for now. I could see at some future point going to the four-hour mark. But I don't know that I'm going to keep these these clips or these previews up for long. They'll be up there long enough, and then more or less in chronological order, I'll take some down and proceed through the rest of the first few years of inappropriate conversations. I'm tempted to keep some of these clips up even longer, in part because a lot of the things that I'm excerpting are the original works that I'd written, things that inspired me to go ahead and do a podcast in the first place, whether they be poems or short stories or essays, where I can excerpt them in their entirety and pull them out of the context of the show. That's more or less the approach that I'm using. In other cases, I just try to grab enough of the intro that you can tell by listening and not just by reading what that particular episode is all about. As always, inappropriate conversations can also be found on Stitcher. Stitcher Smart Radio is a good way to listen to podcasts and music and news on the go. Stitcher can be found at stitcher.com, and there's an app available in both the iOS and Android stores. I interact with people through the heading of inappropriate conversations on both Facebook and Twitter. On Twitter, I am at IC underscore Greg, tying out to the SoundCloud page as well in terms of IC underscore Greg. And on Facebook, I have a page for Inappropriate Conversations and another page for Walk the Earth, the other podcast that appears on this feed. As always, for correspondence, I can be reached via email at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com or comments are enabled where the show notes are posted at www.inappropriateconversations.org. That may suffice by way of sort of resetting all the different things that are happening in terms of ways to interact with inappropriate conversations. And the new one is SoundCloud. By all means, if you've got a point of view, let me know what you think. I did reach out to a couple of other podcast publishers and leaders, really, to ask their opinion and got enough feedback to tell me that Yeah, especially based on the expense, this might be another way of sort of reaching out, if not to a new audience, at least reaching out with the oldest material to people who may not have heard it before. This is part of what you might call my campaign for transparency. 
And what I mean by that in part is that the oldest shows, at least the first handful of clips that are out there on SoundCloud, uh, reveal the sound quality of the earliest part of inappropriate conversations. I recall talking with Tony Pucci, sharing some emails online, or perhaps posts on a forum back in the day. He said he listened to one or two shows and then stopped for a while. And, you know, it took him months to come back and revisit it because he couldn't really easily get past the sound quality issues of the first couple of shows. And, and he's totally on target. I was learning my way, not just with editing, but even with recording and compressing. And it shows. As these um, clips progress through time, through the first few months of inappropriate conversations, I'm sure the quality will get better. Uh, I believe the quality has been somewhat consistent for really years now, but it took several months to get up and running. And to me, that's an example of transparency. Transparency is, in one sense, the willingness, or even the ability, perhaps, to say, hey, things are not 100% pure gold. I'm not Midas, nor what I want to be. Uh, everything I touch doesn't turn out to be pure gold. And that's really one of the issues that we're facing as a nation right now, is that as a country, and I see this in work environments, work situations, I certainly see it inside the church, but I'll let Walk the Earth as a podcast speak to, to those issues more directly. But obviously in our government, we're not very good at being transparent. In some ways, it's accurate to say we're not very good at telling the truth. We have a problem with secrets. So I wanted to hit this in two different ways, and I really wrestled with what I wanted to do for the different drummer segment. I'll come back to the different drummer later in the episode. But I actually made two switches along the way, trying to figure out exactly, well, who do I want to cite when it comes to concepts related to transparency and secrets? Do I want to talk about it in a personal way? Do I want to talk about it from the government's perspective? And I will get there later. Maybe I want to start really at first with business. And that was one of the people that I wanted to quote, or at least to paraphrase, freely in this show. It's a business author named Jason Jennings. I've read a couple of his books. He's not somebody that I follow, so if he's done more books in the last few years, I, I may have missed them. But one of them was talking about how, and this was maybe 15 years ago, talking about how the companies that are going to thrive in the new economy, the companies that are going to do well in, say, the, uh, the era of what was then burgeoning social media, aren't necessarily going to be the biggest. There was an era where bigger meant better, and that uh, the too-big-to-fail concept, I think, probably came from that period of time. But now his point of view is that the small, the nimble, the quick organizations will be the ones that are able to react to trends, stay on top of things, and ultimately thrive. That was the second book that I read by him. I want to focus more on his first book, which I believe he just called Less is More. In some ways, uh, chronologically, I read them out of order. Less, and more, less is More is the more recent of the two books. And it built upon the first principle that, again, you don't necessarily have to surround yourself with layer upon layer of defenses to succeed. Sometimes the best thing you can do to succeed is to be transparent. So I'll try to cite some examples. This is purely just from memory, and probably a decade has gone by since I read the books. But I did take some notes, and of those notes, which I have in front of me, I want to highlight just a few topics. He provided some productivity lessons. I want to cite five, maybe, of those 14 lessons. And then also cited 11 traits of productive leadership. And I want to cite three or four of those as well. Because I think that this is one of the things that sometimes we, we lose along the way. In the era of social media, for example, 
and in the multi-channel ways that perhaps uh, you know, maybe retailers sell to people, the different ways that music can be experienced, the just the different formats that are available tend to make even something as straightforward as a marketing effort very fractured. It's hard to keep it all together. But his first principle, at least the, the one that I put down first on my notes, is have a big objective. Essentially, it's that concept of, of have a plan and stick to it. If you don't know where you're going, how will you ever know if, you, if you've gotten there? That notion of having a big objective. And one of his points was it's not enough to have a plan that's easily achieved, that is simple and straightforward, that is underwhelming. If you're going to lay out a vision for people, that you're going to expect those people to follow you, and this is true whether you're a pastor, whether you're a CEO, whether you're a politician, whether you're a military general, for that matter, you need to have a big objective, something that forces everyone to divert and maintain their attention toward the task at hand. And the second one, very closely related to it, is get everyone on board. He took it so far as to mention an idea called public hangings. This is not something that we do. We don't do public hangings very well. And I'm speaking particularly in the industry, uh, like in in retail or in manufacturing. When you see somebody dismissed for not getting the job done, or even when you see somebody get dismissed from their post for failing company policy, it can even be failing in a very egregious way. It could be an opportunity for the leaders to point to what somebody has done wrong, tell everybody exactly what that person failed at as an object lesson for everyone else to get themselves online. In other words, Get on board. Get behind the big objective. And Jennings recommends that sometimes the way to do that is actually to remove those leaders who are not on board and to do so publicly. And again, public hangings is the euphemistic expression that he uses for it. But in our current litigious society, where a lot of the hiring and firing decisions are controlled by human resources department and the legal department, you don't see very many public hangings. I have been in a couple of companies for the last 25 years. Uh, that's a blessing. I haven't had to bounce from workplace to workplace. But in all the time with each one of those companies, I can't remember an instance, if there was one, there wasn't more than one, where somebody who was let go from a key leadership position for cause, who was basically terminated, I can't remember ever getting any communication saying what the person did wrong and why it's so important that everyone not make the same mistake that that individual did. You just don't see public hangings. Too much risk, I suppose. There's always the, uh, well, you have the problem of the rumor mill. You have the problem of uh, being able to prove whatever it is you are saying and not let anybody take it one step further and get you to a place where you might be sued. It's not about character assassination. It's about making sure that everyone else understands that if this individual has violated a code of ethics, if this person is not on board and is engaging in activities which is counter to the big objective, that it's not just, you're not just removing the problem. You're removing the problem in such a way that you eliminate corresponding problems. You bring other people who are out of line into line. Because the other thing that Jennings says along those lines is, not only is he in favor of, in some ways, very publicly removing leaders who don't get the job done, but the flip side of that is trying never to lay anybody off. Let people remove themselves from the organization on their own steam. People who are not behind the big objective perhaps will find the encouragement to seek a different company where they could get behind the big objective without necessarily having to have a lot of drama on the way out the door. 
all of this really boils down to one concept that is crucial for Jennings' entire list, and that's truthfulness. Truthfulness is uh, maybe the third of the five I want to mention, and the fourth is always live and work with integrity. So those are two things. It's one thing to be truthful and honest about the corners you're cutting and the rules you're breaking. That, that There's no integrity in that. It's both living and working with integrity and being honest about it. And being honest about it implies that transparency is present. There have to be some secrets in every organization. There's a wrong time to tell the customer what your Black Friday deals are going to be. You certainly don't want to reveal too much about what your big doorbuster sales will be and what your pricing on those will be if you're doing it at a time when your competition could not only glean the information but react to it by undercutting you or overbuying against your offer. But there's also a time to be straightforward with that. And it doesn't bother me when a company leaks their their big sales event for the Thanksgiving weekend beforehand because in some ways it's sort of an act of transparency. It presumes that the customer has a role to play in the process and, and arming that customer with advanced information can be a powerful thing. This is one of the things that always frustrated me when I worked in the record stores in that part of my career. Because I found that, as often as not, the record companies were more interested in making sure that people could not buy music than they were interested in making sure that people could. I realize that seems like a counterproductive statement. But when you think about it, the obsession with piracy, the entire flap with Napster, the use of CRM and other techniques to block people from sharing files with each other, a lot of that was not about trying to monetize the sale of music, and clearly it was that. A lot of that was trying to make sure that music could not be shared, which is, in principle, not a problem. It becomes a problem when something that is out of print is kept within the control of the record label to make sure that no one else can put it in print either. And when record labels take you know, harsh measures toward people for sharing music with each other that is currently not available and not in print and kept unavailable and kept out of print by that very record label. Well, this is no longer about the exchange of ideas. Copyright is a concept, or maybe to a certain extent trademark as well, but certainly copyright is a concept. All about making sure that the free exchange of ideas would be protected by protecting the financial and economic interests of those people who created the material in the first place. But as often as not, today, you'll see copyright used not to monetize and support transparency, but to block things and to keep things unpublished, undiscussed, and to, to essentially to lock them down. So this concept of truthfulness, being tied with working with integrity... It really hits home for me because, you know, for years, well, you take a look at Disney, for example. The Walt Disney Company will release and then lock down their video and DVD and Blu-ray recordings of some of their classic movies. The idea is to arbitrarily maintain a certain level of supply and demand. Well, that's okay. But if Disney were to do what the major record labels are doing and, you know, suing parents who loan a DVD to their neighbor or uh, have a sleepover and show all six you know, kids who are there with your daughter a Disney movie. If you took it to that extreme, then, then I would have a real problem with it because it, it is the free exchange of ideas. I, I can't tell you on the music front how many recordings I've bought in my lifetime 
that I heard for the first time because somebody shared it with me, either in person or in a public place listening to it together, or driving down the road in my friend's car, or somebody actually handing me their album and asking me to bring it back to them next week. That exchange of ideas has led to thousands, in my case, probably tens of thousands of dollars in music purchases. And if I'd never heard the songs, never would have made the purchase. Nowhere is there a problem as great with the concept of transparency, especially truthfulness and integrity, versus you know lying, keeping secrets, than frankly the United States government today. I think that if we were aware of how the government classification of secrets worked, we either would be outraged, or I would be outraged that we're not, because we should be outraged. The fact of the matter is that a lot of times things are classified as state secrets, not because there's any true national security risk involved or any concern involved. They're classified as state secrets simply because it's embarrassing. I recall one of the WikiLeaks issues early in the Obama administration where the documents that were being leaked that were viewed as an affront to our national security and were issuing warrants of arrest to you know the WikiLeaks people, the issue wasn't that any state secrets were exchanged. The issue wasn't that any sort of tactics were being revealed. It was that you know the Secretary of State had been more than just a little bit uh, rude in describing and criticizing things like dress and manners of some of our international partners. And it was just embarrassing for somebody to be that tacky in the way they were referring in memos to people who were presumably our allies, or at least allies alliances we were trying to build. Well, I'm sorry, it's not a matter of national security that you've been inept in some way. It's not a matter of national security that you've been rude or short-sighted. I think right now we probably have issues of government-classified state secrets that are keeping hidden extramarital affairs that are probably more extensive and perhaps even more offensive than anything that Bill Clinton did during all of his years in the White House. That it serves political purposes, but perhaps of both parties, for us to not know more about what really happened in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, or certainly earlier than that. You know, when you think about things we've kept secret related to the Kennedy assassination or to our relationship with Cuba, you wonder at what point, three decades, four decades, five decades later, at what point there's any value in keeping some of this stuff secret. There's allegations that have been raised on other shows. The Dan Carlin Common Sense podcast, for example, has over time suggested that the the origin story of the Vietnam War is perhaps uh, kept classified and kept secret, to a large extent kept secret, not because there's any tactical advantage to continuing to classify that information, but more because it makes the United States government look bad. I am so committed to the idea of truthfulness and transparency and my understanding of what it means to protect state secrets is built upon a foundation of saying that you first must have a pretty good grip on what is and what is not a secret. In other words, if you classify everything, then you've actually demeaned the secrets you're supposed to be keeping. So what I would do is I would, I would put some sort of teeth into the process of the classification of documents, because the United States has become a country that is, by and large, being run by secret government. Not every one of our elected officials has any role to play in national security decision-making, 
if there's a spying program, international or domestic, and by domestic I mean spying on U.S. citizens, you really can't necessarily blame your senator or your representative for being okay with it or for green-lighting it. Because they may have never been informed about the program to begin with. They may have never been one of the, call it 20, lawmakers who were privileged enough to even have an expectation that they would have been informed of any of this. And how is any of this legal? Well, these activities are legal because a secret court, or, well, let's call it, a, we'll call it what is a FISA court, but a court that is not answerable in any sort of public way, even to other courts, makes a decision. And I believe that if we looked at the stats, we would find that the number of times the court sides with the government on questions of the classification of documents or the use of uh, very advanced methods of surveillance is well into the 90s. If 90% of the time I ask for something, I get it. That is probably an indication that there's only one rubber stamp being used, approved, or pocket approval. Now, what I would do is I would say that the decision to classify something is so crucial, crucial to a free society, crucial to a free press, uh, for First Amendment reasons, but also for reasons that are actually dotted all over the Constitution itself, not to mention our founding documents, things like the Federalist Papers or Common Sense. This notion of transparency is important enough that I would suggest that instead of having the horizon be 30 years out or 35 years out, that it may need to be something much more simple, like 12. I could probably settle for 20, truth be known, but I think the real answer is 12. 12 years out gives you a guarantee that you are not only no longer in the presidency of, of the administrative team that's in place at the time that classification was requested, assuming in this case that the classification of documents is usually coming from the administrative branch, but you actually have another different president who's at least four years in at the time that the declassification of materials occurs. Again, this gives you a lot of leeway. Now, if you're the vice president during the first eight years of presidency where the president gets reelected and then you run for president yourself and get elected, you could still be leading the country at the time that embarrassing information gets revealed. But I think that there needs to be something much more stringent to re-up that classification. And the way I would handle it is that you can reclassify once for 12 years and then another time and that's it. So 36 years is the max that anything could ever be legally classified, no matter what the situation is. As a nation, I do not want to be engaged in a 36-year war. I don't support the idea of doing so. And I'm more committed to the United States looking like the country our founding fathers tried to hand us that I am worrying about what might happen if there was another Cold War that went on even longer than the first Cold War. No, 36 years is sufficient. But here's the trick. For me, after 12 years, if a document gets unclassified, there needs to be a vote, a national vote in the next set of nationwide elections to answer the question as a country, should those documents have been classified in the first place, yes or no? And if the, if the country votes and by a simple majority says, yes, they should have been classified, then that's fine. No harm, no foul. We as a nation learn something at the declassification of that material and the historians write their books and write their papers. If, on the other hand, the American people vote by a simple majority, then no, that material should not have been classified. Then whoever it was who asked for those materials to be classified in the first place... However high up that train goes, 
whether that's the president of the United States, or in this case, an ex-president of the United States, whether the responsibility falls more to a vice president based on the documentary evidence available, whether it's a unilateral decision made by a secretary, say of defense, or somebody in the CIA, whoever that is, having classified materials that the United States citizens said should not have been, this whole by the people, for the people, of the people, those folks should, said should not have been classified in the first place, you go to prison. I'm comfortable saying that you know, after 12 years have gone by, that maybe your prison sentence should be six years, an option to get out after maybe three for good behavior, but real prison. But your rights should be stripped from you. Whatever somebody who's committed a felony has to endure, you should have to endure. Because you committed treason against the citizens of the United States by presuming to classify documents that did not need to be classified in the minds of a majority of the citizens of this country. You violated the principles of transparency, of truthfulness, and perhaps even integrity by doing so. Perhaps you'll see a lot less instances of people classifying things that are merely politically embarrassing and not well and truly state secrets. And heaven forbid, you as a president lead us headlong against the will of the people into an unpopular war. You might find yourself in the retirement post-presidency years as a Lyndon Johnson, waiting for the 12 years to go by when the American people throw you in prison, not necessarily because you were wrong to feel like the information that was classified should have been, it was military secrets for crying out loud. But heaven help you if the majority of the people in the country are so angry with you they don't care that they were military secrets. I've got an open mind. Maybe we need a supermajority. Maybe it's a semi-supermajority, like 60%. But whatever we say that number is, if the American people look at that material and say, my goodness, why was this ever classified? Somebody ought to be in trouble. Somebody ought to be doing prison time. And their crime should be honestly identified for what it is. It's treason. Keeping secrets from the, from the American people. Stopping government of the people from functioning because they don't have the information to work with. Now, what happens if after 12 years, a court, secret or otherwise, maybe we should force this all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and force the decision to be made there. Look at the material and say, yes, we need to keep this classified. The longest they can do that for is another 12 years. And after the 24 years go by, perhaps we declassify the information at that point in time. And the very next set of national elections, we have a national vote. We looked at the material and we weigh in. Yes or no, this material should not have been classified in the first place. Well, to me, the penalties need to be a lot higher. If you can get six years in prison, six years in prison for you know classifying material that shouldn't have been classified in the first place after the 12-year span and the declassification occurs, if you've made 24 years of unacceptable secrets happen to conceal vital information from the American people, or frankly, even trivial information, where you've devalued the classification system altogether by classifying stuff that shouldn't have had to go through the red tape in the first place, the penalties should be higher. The American people vote in that situation that this material never should have been classified. You ought to be serving 12 years. And perhaps in this case, 12 years with no time off for good behavior. If you let the material get declassified, the worst you're going to get for just classifying embarrassing information and being really a a very poor politician, a very poor American, to be honest with you, is three or six years, depending on, again, how how well you serve your term. But if you have the temerity to reclassify material that the American people say never should have been classified in the first place, 
that vote could put you in prison for 12 years long and 12 years hard. No time off for good behavior. No opportunity for parole until the 12 years have gone by. That might make you think as a politician. Because now I probably have more than one president on the hook here. I get the original president, if he's still alive from 12 years ago, now 24. And I got this other president who 12 years ago said, yep, re-up that sucker. Both of these guys may be going to prison. I don't have any qualms. I don't believe in kings. I don't believe that America should believe in kings. We shouldn't have a monarch-based system. If you did bad things in office and we find out about it, you should go to prison. And I'm willing to say that probably half the presidents of my lifetime should have spent time in prison. We know this. It goes without saying. As a nation, we tried to impeach one. His crimes were nowhere near as severe as the most popular president of my lifetime a decade earlier than him. And there's obviously been serious questions raised about both Bush and Obama. Yeah, I don't have any problem saying one of the things you got to worry about when you get elected president of the United States to lead this country is that if you can't do it with integrity, there ought to be some teeth to that. We shouldn't have this hands-off approach where, well, you know, we're going to pardon this and we're going to pardon that. I'm not going to go so far as to say that Gerald Ford made a huge mistake by pardoning Nixon, but I'll say that it wouldn't have bothered me a bit if he'd had to spend five or six years in prison. I would have been okay with that. And I say this not for political reasons. I come at this thing as a political moderate. I do not qualify for any litmus test you would apply to me, any honest one, about, ooh, Greg's a liberal, or, ooh, Greg's a conservative. I'm neither Democrat nor Republican. I'm anti-Republicrat, as a matter of fact. I don't see the political parties as being substantially different from each other on this question of, well, transparency, truthfulness, integrity, honesty, the way we manage secrets. They seem to have a uh, consensus. Or at the very least, we could all agree that the way Obama's handled state secrets didn't look very different at all from the way Bush handled state secrets. So what do I do if that third and final re-upping happens? So after 24 years, we don't declassify the material. And in this case, hypothetically, it doesn't reveal that the American people would find it unacceptable that it was ever classified in the first place, meaning there's not two different presidents or maybe even two presidents, vice presidents, and uh, several ex-cabinet ministers who go to prison for 12 years long. We re-up that classification the courts don't have the integrity, again, for the, maybe we get into the courts at some point and say, hey, let's say we get into that 24-year mark and we say, hey, 12 years ago, some Supreme Court justices said yes to classifying this material. Why would they say yes to re-upping something and reclassifying it? If, say, 60% of the American people would, in a free election, say there's no way that stuff ever should have been classified, maybe we should be charging some just some justices with treason or some FISA court judges with treason for their role in playing a ruse on the American people and classifying stuff. Maybe the first go-round in year zero, the only accountable party is the administrative branch of the government. But on year 12, if we re-up that and put 12 more years of classification on documents that never should have been state secrets in the first place, well, you got to hold the judges accountable then, too. you got a judicial branch accountability. So what happens if we re-up for that last term? 36 years of classified state secrets, with the sort of expectation being that 36 years is plenty of time. There is nothing 36 years ago that should be still a state secret at this stage. We're doing something very wrong in the way we govern. We're doing very, something very wrong in the way we interact with others in the world if we've got to keep a secret a secret that long. So after 36 years, there is no 
pass by the court. There is no call for an extension. These secrets immediately become public. And my theory is that in this system I'm proposing, after the 36th year, you look at this material and no way more than 50 or 60% of the American people are going to look at that and say, ooh, never should have been a secret. I trust that the American people would collectively be smart enough to either defer to their elders or to listen to their elders and say, hey, you know, it was a different time back then. It all depends on the situation. But if the different time back then says that, hey, there are secrets we're keeping from North and South Vietnam and from the American people about what we are doing illegally in Cambodia, well, that's one thing. But if you reveal 36 years later a program to harass, intimidate, plant evidence, um, falsely accuse, falsely convict American citizens, were your biggest issue with those American citizens they had a different political viewpoint than you or they might vote for the other guy? If that stuff is revealed in a declassification situation 36 years later, uh, not only do I hold the justices of both the 12-year and the 24-year decision accountable for the full weight of the 36-year term, I also hold whoever made the original decision and whichever president or administrative branch representative asked for that classification. Because if, again, a supermajority or a semi-supermajority of the American people come along and say that never should have been classified and feel so passionately about it that they know that their vote is going to have extreme consequences and they're willing to levy those consequences, I say bring it on. Because to me, anything that's been classified for 36 years and shows up in the light of day only after more than three decades and the American people look at that and say, there is absolutely no reason that ever should have been classified in the first place. It's not just a vote that we're angry that our government did something really wrong. It's that our government did something really wrong and didn't own up to it at the first available opportunity. Everyone involved in maintaining those kind of what I would call inappropriate secrets should be placed in prison for the rest of their lives with no opportunity for parole. Now, anybody who's listened to a lot of these inappropriate conversations may know that I've just kind of committed a bit of a faux pas. Because in the very first year, I briefly spoke about the death penalty when I named John Stewart as a different drummer. And I did an entire episode, maybe a year later, talking about the death penalty in particular. I think that's the one where I named uh, Russia's drummer and principal lyricist Neil Peart as a different drummer. In each one of these cases, I've said I'm not a big fan of life in prison without the possibility of parole. To me, it's a cop-out. If you're going to put somebody in prison and throw away the key, you might as well implement a death penalty. If you're that serious about it, you might as well implement a death penalty. It's not that I think the death penalty is cheaper, because I know it's not. But there's something final about it. And I really dislike the idea of the sort of cop-out represented by saying that, well, we're not really killing anybody. Well, you sort of are. You're saying they're not going to make the light of day unless you kill them. And don't get me wrong. Treason on this level? I could be talked into the death penalty in a heartbeat. But part of the reason I'm not necessarily worried about whether it's life without the possibility of parole, or let's just agree on 24 years, hard 24. If it's three to six, six years with the possibility of parole for the first transgression of illegal classification of documents, and if after the 24th year it doubles up to 12 years, no parole, then maybe, maybe 24 is enough. Maybe a hard 24-year sentence with no opportunity for parole, because when you think about it, you're talking about 36 years ago that the original president or cabinet minister made the decision to classify something that never should have been classified. And that it's been 24 years since the next president or cabinet minister made the mistake. And the judge, 
the judges associated with that, the ones who voted yes to that decision. And you know, now you're you know, 36 years old. There's been a lot of time. You're talking about the original decision. Those people probably aren't alive anyway. And if they are, 24 years without the possibility of parole is probably sure, certainly a death penalty. Most people don't become president of the United States before the age of 40. It's not even possible before the age of 35. So if you were 40 years old when you classified something that, that is this egregious of a secret that it never should have been classified, and it's that embarrassing, but it's certainly not national security interest, you'll be 76 years old before anybody gets around to trying you for this crime of what I'm going to call treason. It's enough to put the ideas out there and talk about it. In essence, this is my way of saying that this is my beef with the dialogue we're having about transparency and secrets and spying, and domestic spying in particular. Because I've just outlined a very detailed plan on how we might put former secretaries of state and defense, leaders of the CIA, presidents and vice presidents in prison for their role in managing the secrets of this nation. And it's going to be ironic, although maybe not surprising, that when I get to the different drummer, I'm not really in that big of a hurry to put this guy in prison at all. And that's controversial. I may have lost my ability to travel, Edward Snowden said in a recent interview with NBC Nightly News anchor Brian Williams. But I've gained the ability to go to sleep at night and put my head on the pillow and feel comfortable that I've done the right thing, even when it was hard to do. And I'm comfortable with that. I have very mixed feelings about naming Edward Snowden as a different drummer. The very nature of him as a person and the things that he has done in the last year or little more than a year make it very hard to know whether the individual that I'm naming, if, do we know him at all? Is the public image that's been put forward by non-American media outlets accurate and reliable? Should we put any stock in the few interviews we've seen and heard? Well, I'll take it even a step further. I didn't watch the Brian Williams interview. I only know what I know from reading news accounts about the interview because I'm skeptical as to how reliable the obviously self-serving, quote-unquote, testimony of Snowden might be. But I'm more skeptical of those who seem to be obsessed with casting him in some sort of a very old-school traitor light. In other words, I have a hard time viewing him as someone who's committed treason from a Cold War perspective and in a Cold War paradigm, when, for one thing, we're no longer leading a Cold War. And for another thing, You've got to ask what it means when you talk about somebody defending a nation. Who is the nation? Is the nation our military? Is the nation our government? Is the nation our courts or our secret courts? Or is the nation the people? That's the question. Even what little we do know about Snowden, if I quote Wikipedia, I think we have to view some of that as being a work in progress where maybe there won't be a day, but maybe there will be a day where a trial would reveal more and more of the information would become, well, perhaps a little bit more true, a little bit more transparent. Here's what Wikipedia says about Edward Joseph Snowden, born 1983. He's an American computer professional, a former systems administrator for the Central Intelligence Agency, and a counterintelligence trainer at the Defense Intelligence Agency. He later went to work for the private intelligence contractor Dell inside a national security agency outpost in Japan. In early 2013, he joined the consulting firm Booz Allen Hamilton inside the NSA Center in Hawaii. 
In June 2013, he came to international attention after disclosing several to several media outlets thousands of classified documents that he acquired while working as an NSA contractor for Dell and Booz Allen Hamilton. Snowden's release of the classified material has been described as the most significant leak in U.S. history since the release of the Pentagon Papers by Daniel Ellsberg. I'll leave Wikipedia at this point and just hit just a couple of contrasting opinions very quickly. Snowden. He's been described simultaneously as a traitor, as somebody who's put American lives at risk and compromised our national security interests and empowered and emboldened our enemies, and somebody who has actually done perhaps one of the most brave and patriotic things since the American Revolution. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, and I don't presume to know how far to one side or the other of the middle that it is, but I would only call out that a lot of the complaints that have been made about Snowden have been disingenuous at best, and perhaps just as criminal as anything he's accused of doing. Here's what I mean. The man basically identified what, in his opinion, because he couldn't get anybody else to listen to him, were you know either a combination of materials that shouldn't have been classified at all, because they fall into this heading of the previous part of the show. What does it mean when you're classifying stuff that isn't really of a national security interest? Or things that revealed that the American government had turned its sights on declaring war against its own citizens, that the American people had become the enemy. And then instead of trying to you know, seek out opportunities to uncover the uh, threats to the United States posed by foreign nationals, the United States had invested itself in trying to decipher the threats to the United States by the United States' own citizens. It was an indiscriminate, untargeted, frankly unjustified set of sweeping fishnet surveillance, for want of a better word. I remember having a conversation at a conference about the use of large data sets in predictive analytics with some people who were having a discussion about the wisdom of diving full into what we might call big data, gathering every single data point, no longer using surveying techniques and data modeling to make any sort of predictions, but to try to drive predictive analytics against the entire set of people. In other words, no longer surveying 5,000 randomly selected American citizens for a phone survey based on a set of demographics that give you a reasonable scientific chance of getting a representative set of the country, but only doing phone surveys if you can get 330 million people to answer their telephone. That logic. And talking about big data, it was never a question, even 10 years ago or 15 years ago, because it was probably not possible then to do a survey with that kind of scope. But I asked in the midst of this argument over whether uh, statistical modeling was necessary anymore, whether just gathering all the data from all the available data sets was enough. Then I asked them, do you feel safer? This is, of course, in the, right in the aftermath of the Snowden revelations. I said, do you feel safer knowing that the Homeland Security Department, the CIA, the NSA, the people who are charged with protecting our country using spying techniques and, and trying to identify the next terrorist threat before it happens, do you feel safer knowing that the people who are supposed to be keeping us safe from terrorists are spending their time reading your grocery lists, pouring over your love letters if you deliver them via text or on Facebook or in an email? Do you feel safer? And not a single person raised their hand. Because I think all of us know that we're not the threat. And those people who probably secretly know they are, and say, I actually had an international terrorist in the, in the conference with me. 
that secretly know they are a threat. Well, you know, they know the government's going to be looking at them anyway. They'll be profiled either based on their travel patterns or their ethnicity or their views expressed politically online or elsewhere. Those people won't get weeded out. They'll get watched. But everyone else in the room was like me. See, if the government is listening into my phone calls, why are they wasting their time? Why are they making our nation less safe by getting distracted over somebody who just has a small podcast and a lot of opinions and points of view? I'm not the threat that they need to be ferreting out. And I don't believe that my presence in the data sample enhances their ability to decipher threats from non-threats inside the big data they've gathered for the use of predictive analytics. You can do predictive analytics just as well if you've targeted the right 5,000 people for 50,000 people or 50 million people. You don't have to survey 330 million Americans to figure out who's a threat and who's not. And if you bury yourself in information, you might find that the problem that you end up dealing with, it's ultimately the problem that everybody in the industry understood when I was at that conference a year or so ago, or less than a year ago. Sometimes you end up with too little signal because you have too much noise. So the federal government, burying itself in noise, missing the signal, or at least running the risk of missing the signal, was called out in a very public and a very embarrassing way by Edward Snowden. A couple things happened. He was immediately called a liar, and people representing our government, and this, again, beyond liberal and conservative, beyond Republican and Democrat, you know, we've had 12 or 24 years of this, called him a liar, and he was able to prove through journalistic contacts that the material he had backed him up, that he wasn't telling lies, he was exposing truths. And in some cases, the government was probably more upset by the classified material he was releasing that was obviously stuff that shouldn't have been either done in the first place or classified in the first place, as they were about anything that he might have in his possession that could actually lead to the loss of life of spies or troops or anyone else. Did Snowden take a terrible chance? Is Snowden and Glenn Greenwald and other reporters who have access to this material taking a terrible chance? Sure. Is there an opportunity that some of this material is going to prove to be just as dangerous as the U.S. government insists that it is? Perhaps. The problem I've got with the U.S. government, though, is that because they've insisted that everything is a state secret and everything is potentially classified, how can we know what's legitimate to classify or not? I didn't go off uh, on a tangent earlier to talk about how important it is, I think, to round up and imprison people who classify material that ought not be classified if it wasn't happening. It's happening, and it's happening at a fairly substantial pace. Elected officials agreeing to support classification of documents as state secrets, when really all they're trying to do is you know, avoid embarrassing information getting out to potential voters during an election cycle. It's an improper use of our classification system, and I, I will guarantee that as much as we find stuff in the Snowden revelations that reveal really important and not obvious things to enemies of the United States and enemies of the Western world. Uh, we're going to find a heck of a lot more things that are embarrassing because they never should have been classified. Or they reveal that the United States has declared war on its own people and not just people who are potential terror threats. Because there's really two things that I object to when you hear the rhetoric coming from Secretary of State John Kerry, for example, responding to the interview that Edward Snowden did with NBC News. One of them is this sort of over-the-top assertion that our enemies have become stronger. You know, I haven't seen a single revelation that has come out of Snowden 
uh, and the things, the documents that he leaked and provided to newspapers. And let's not forget, he tried to provide this information to his superiors. They wouldn't listen. Tried to provide this information to American news outlets, including widely respected ones like the New York Times. They weren't interested. So far, I haven't heard anything that if you were an international terrorist and you didn't and you hadn't already guessed everything has been revealed so far through these documents that Snowden leaked, you're an idiot and you're not a threat to the American people. You're too stupid to be a credible threat to anybody because most of it fairly obvious. And if it confirms what people would have guessed anyway, I fail to see how that raises to the level of treason. But, you know, the other concern that Kerry raised, and if anything, John Kerry, I've spoken before that I, I feel bad about the fact that in, in 2004 I voted for George W. Bush. It's the single worst, most embarrassing presidential ballot I've ever cast in my entire life, I hope. I never have another presidential vote that's as bad as that one. But I'm not the least bit embarrassed that I voted against John Kerry. As I've said in previous inappropriate conversations, particularly the elections is not horse races uh, episode, I should have voted for Ralph Nader. I voted for him in 2008. I should have voted for him in 2004, perhaps even in 2000, because John Kerry didn't earn my vote. And nothing he's done since as, as, as a lawmaker or a secretary of state has changed my mind. See, because Kerry's got this, you know, this bombacity to him that either reflects that he's not being trustworthy and truthful and honest, or he's just not as bright as he could be. Because he says, well, you know what, if Edward Snowden is this kind of a patriot, if what he did was, is acceptable, if the American people would find that what he did was okay, then he should come back and stand trial. You know what, I don't buy it for one second. Let me, in fact, go to the other extreme on the Obama administration and Secretary of State Kerry's role in that administration. If the United States knew exactly where Snowden was today, I mean, triangulated not just to the mile, but to the city block where he was today, and if they had reason to believe that he was located in the same place where his possession of these classified documents were, a drone would have struck that location long before now. The only reason Edward Snowden is alive today is that he separated himself from the documents and he's tried as best he can to keep his location secret. And he's put himself in places, whether wisely or foolishly, in places where the U.S. government doesn't necessarily have the ability to go in willy-nilly with troops and dig him out. It would require a drone strike. And you say, well, hey, but that's crazy, Greg. The United States government would never launch a drone strike to kill an American citizen overseas and any collateral damage that might happen along the way. What, have you not read the papers? Of course we would. We have. Under the Obama administration, with Obama's blessing and leadership, with Obama, frankly, defending the program. If we would take out other American citizens overseas, I guarantee they'd take out Snowden. Kerry's exact expression was that Edward Snowden should man up, come back to the United States, and face the consequences for his actions. The implication being that he should stand trial for violating rules about the handling of classified material. This, of course, begs two questions. First, is our standard for classifying documents a joke or not? I suspect it's a joke. We may have to wait 30 years to find out the punchline on some of these things. We might have to wait even longer. So if the classification of materials is the crime that we've said it is, there needs to be a corresponding crime to punish people who classify things that never should have been classified in the first place. 
as long as that crime's not in place, I have a hard time getting too upset about the crime of revealing classified material if that classified material is a snarky comment about the first lady of another country's dress. I have a hard time accepting that as a classified state secret. But the other thing is, when Carrie talks about Edward Snowden manning up, the question is, how smart is Carrie? Well, first, his use of expressions reveals a certain amount of misunderstanding of what American society views to be the proper, polite, courteous, call it politically correct if you want to, way of addressing people. But I don't think he means come back to the United States for a fair trial. He's either not very smart, or he means come back to the United States, we can put a bullet in your head and call it done. So, somebody who, on the threat of their life, risks imprisonment, death or worse, to tell the American people truths that we need to hear, I may come along later and regret naming Snowden as a different drummer. There may be revelations that prove to be, that make me look back on this episode with some embarrassment. I'm speaking about something before all the facts are known. And even when all the facts are known, there may be a genuine disagreement of opinion among others, and maybe even in my own head, in my own camp, so to speak. But there's one more argument I'd like to regret, as I cite Snowden as a different drummer. It's a reactionary pick. I'm not picking Snowden the man, I'm picking Snowden the idea, I guess, would be the way I would word it. And I'll get to this notion of um, the idea of a person the next time I record an inappropriate conversation. I'll dive into that idea in some detail. But the idea of Edward Snowden is being willing to stand up and say the United States of America stands for more than just whatever its government wants. And if its government turns on its own people, then somebody's got to stand up and say that happened. The issue that I've got is with other people, perhaps on the more liberal side of the political spectrum, and in this case I mean more liberal than John Kerry, saying things like, well, you know what, I don't, the Snowden guy's getting credit for stuff he doesn't deserve, his revelations haven't told us anything we didn't already know, uh, he's falling prey to our enemies, he's revealing things that didn't need to be revealed. You know what, if we really believe that, that he hasn't told us anything that needed to be made public, then it really isn't a big deal that he declassified some documents on his own. I realize unilaterally declassifying documents is a crime for which people ought to be punished. But if we really believe that everything he's shared was so common knowledge, so banal, so mundane, that it doesn't really matter that he made some sort of sacrifice to get it done, if that's what I'm hearing from the far left in this country... Uh, those people who would stand up and oppose what Snowden did, then you've got to admit, there's something wrong with our technique of classifying documents. Our classification system itself fails the big objective. It subverts the idea of getting everyone on board. It's not even remotely truthful. And it's not even one iota of living with integrity. And for that, for that idea of Snowden, I'm willing to call him a different drummer and take my chances. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. 
We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies. And we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. The number one principle I like from Jennings' book is this. Always ask, what's the good business reason for doing something? If you can't get the right answer to the question in a business setting of what's the good business reason for doing something, is not in line with the big objective and shouldn't be done. It's the fifth of those principles. I said I'd mention five. To me, it's the most important. It applies to everything else. If you're in a church setting, what's the good, what's the Jesus reason for doing something? This idea of what's the good business reason is not that different from what would Jesus do. If you look at the politics of Christianity today, you find that very few Christians are honestly asking themselves that question and following it to where it goes. You know, likewise, if you're a stage actor, that, that notion of what's my character's motivation, sometimes we make fun of it. It's, it's been the punchline of a few jokes before. Alfred Hitchcock, I think, was the one who said your paycheck is your motivation. But asking why your character would do something, what's the good business reason for the character acting in this way? Probably a crucial thought process for anybody who's, who's an actor. So if you look back to this question of politics and say, what is the good business reason for classifying something as a state secret? I don't think we answer that question. We think national security means more than it really means. We've classified stuff that the American people already know. We've hidden things that don't need to be hidden. And when you fail that standard, there ought to be consequences. There ought to be legal consequences. Finally, of the 11 traits of a productive leader from Jason Jennings' book, Less is More, I'll cite four. And these four are the standard that we ought to be holding Anybody, too, who presumes to call himself a patriot, whether this is somebody who leaks state secrets for what they think is the good of the nation, or the people who hunt that person down and try to bring him to justice, or anyone else who has the temerity to get on a soapbox and make arguments one way or the other. High moral fiber. Embracing simplicity. Belief in others. And trust. There are seven more. But I would suggest that when you look at this Snowden situation and the response of the American government, I find very little that I would describe as high moral fiber, embracing simplicity, belief in others, and trust. That is, frankly, a bigger problem than anything related to the past 13 or 14 months of national and international intrigue over spying and over terrorism. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Kevin McLeod.